Accelerating careers in real estate with Nick Carman. So this evening, I'm sat with Will Bax, Chief Executive Officer of Retirement Villages. Will's built a career in real estate, spending 15 years with Grosvenor, ultimately leading the £5 billion London portfolio as Executive Director, but chose to leave that behind to transform a business in a sector of real estate that many are forecasting as the next generation of the multifamily explosion in the UK. So, Will, you've got an idea in terms of what we're going to have a chat about, and you know I'm a big believer of, of how we can split our careers into chapters. To kick us off, why don't you give us an idea, an oversight in terms of what's, what happens for you in chapter one? Chapter one for me started, I was reading a degree in psychology and philosophy, which doesn't, of course, really sort of equip you for anything particularly obvious, uh, unless you want to be loose and Freud or you know, into the world of psychoanalysis. So I bought myself some time and, and I ended um, up coming out of Durham with a reasonable degree. And I, uh, through chance more than anything else, knew a couple of people who had ended up working in Parliament um, in various capacities from being speechwriters to researchers. And it struck me that that might be an interesting learning ground uh, in life as much as anything else. And I ended up working for the Shadow Environment Minister, searching policy ranging from new waste uh, legislation and, and processes around recycling all the way through to energy policy and spent you know, two years as a very, very low-ranking researcher within the corridors of power. And it was a fascinating time, actually, a time where you know, had to figure out principally how you get on with people and how you recognise you know, the different views and interests of a myriad of stakeholders, I suppose, would be the term I'd use today, um, not the term I used then, from different political persuasions all the way through to you know, local interest groups, lobbying organisations, um, and try to, you know, out of those myriad of different interests, try to establish consensus. And in many ways, it was a, you know, a fascinating induction to the world of work, but in terms of educating me as to how the wider world worked in many ways. So, well, this is a real estate podcast. And so obviously you didn't, you didn't end up within uh, or build that career in politics. Why not? Yeah, when, when I went into that arena, I was actually quite interested in politics as a means of you know, making a difference to the world. And you know, what grew in me was a cynicism as to you know, whether or not most people went into it for that, with that motive in mind or whether or not um, you know, there was a, a broader sort of power trip that you know, drove politicians to land in roles that, that was driven by, by a much more complicated suite of things. So, so that's what sort of, I suppose, engendered a degree of disillusion within me that meant I thought, you know, this, this just isn't a place for me. I'm not going to be happy here. Um, and it's not an environment that I'm going to, you know, to end up in the long term. And therefore, I sort of reappraised uh, my options and, and decided that, you know, actually real estate was something that was very connected to the real world that, that I had identified with. So that's the, I think that's the segue. And that's what drew me to thinking, well, if I'm going to go into real estate, it makes sense to go back to school and read a master's and um, end up at Cambridge. So, Will, at this stage, you must have been 23 or 24 years old. Do you remember what you might have been looking for a career or what you what you had in mind? I mean, it's it's extraordinary to look back on because I I have a very clear um, recollection of of the fact that you know by this stage, two years out of university, working for two years in an interesting context, um, you know, inviting my friends to have lunch with me in the House of Commons. <laughs> it was in, in many ways it, it was yeah great and interesting, but I I. Two years down the line, I had no clue as to what you know I wanted from my career. And I remember sitting down with uh, the guy I was working for here. This you know this stage was a, a shadow minister, and it ended up actually as as, an, as the environment minister, but uh, under Cameron. But he, I, I told him that I was going to leave politics and wanted to do something different, and I was seeking some career advice. And he told me that I needed a plan. I mean, he said, "Listen, when I set out on my career." 
I got a, a, a piece of paper and I mapped it all out. And I decided that I wanted to spend 10 years in the private sector and thereafter that I'd enter parliament. And, you know, my ambition was to, uh, to end up in cabinet. And, yeah, he had sort of mapped it out by era. And, you know, amazingly, he pulled it off. And I thought, yeah, crikey, okay, well, it makes sense to have a plan, I suppose. But I really didn't know what I wanted. I'd identified, you know, in, in deciding that I was going to go back to school and, and get into real estate, you know, that there was a sort of initial building block. But I didn't, I had no idea what that building block would take me. And it wasn't, yeah, it wasn't until a lot later, I think, in my career when I started to gain both confidence in my ability, I suppose, on one hand, but also confidence in my judgment and my beliefs and my values, which for me came, you know, a little bit later, um, that I, you know, had conviction as to, you know, how my career might move. But equally, I've always felt that there is a, you know, there to be a degree of, yeah, I suppose within me a degree of flexibility and adaptability, and and I indeed I place value on those things, and alongside those traits, I'd also identify resilience, um, and knowing that, you know, if something doesn't work out, and all you know, if if all if everything crashed down, then I'd be able to pivot and move in a different direction, and uh, you know that flexibility of mindset has always been important, but also I'm comfortable measuring success in different ways. And, you know, if, if my working life doesn't work out in the way I want it to do and I have to pack up and become a turnip farmer in, in Wales, then, you know, as long as I've got, you know, the people around me I love and, you know, I'm, I'm within a context and a community that, that I recognise as being, you know, valuable and additive to my life, then, then that would be okay, actually. Well then, let me let me pause you there because if you ever do become a turnip farmer, I want I want the exclusive on that. But at the age of age of sort of twenty seven, you graduate from Cambridge, and then your first foray into real estate is with Grosvenor. Tell us what those early early days were like. Yeah, so um, I was twenty six actually when I joined Grosvenor, and I knew nothing about Grosvenor prior to meeting a chap called Jeremy Newsom, who was the then executive. No, sorry, he was the chief executive of the International Property Group at that time, but also the executive trustee. And he sat on the advisory board of the master's course I studied at Cambridge. And I met him at a drinks party and he told me a little bit about Grosvenor. And it sounded like a fascinating business, you know. And um, I followed up the conversation with Jeremy and said, listen, I'd love to find out more. And he, yeah, hoping, I suppose, that he'd say, well, you know, come and talk to me and we'll give you a job. He didn't. He said, well, that's fantastic. We have a graduate program. You should apply for it. And I, had, I went through the process like everybody else. And Grosvenor were foolish enough to give me a job. And that um, triggered yeah, the next chapter. And the, the, the early days were, yeah, having been yeah, already taken some initial steps into the world through my time in Parliament, it was a bit of a sort of bump back down to earth, really, joining the graduate scheme of a, a reasonable-sized corporate and very much being a sort of tiny cog uh, in the uh, in the machinery, um, the dog's body of you know whatever team you're working in. And I spent my first two years in London working across uh, principally development and investment teams, learning the ropes, and I suppose on one hand being yeah, excited to be working in the heart of London, working on a, an extraordinary asset, uh, you know, that 300-acre London estate. And, you know, it was a great early learning ground in terms of uh, experience um, and skill. Um, but equally, you know, I suppose wondering whether or not there, there was a really an opportunity to accelerate. And, um, you know, I have real memories of, of wondering how fast my career might go at a place like Grosvenor uh, in those early days, or whether or not there were several sort of glass ceilings that would be very difficult to break through um, in an organisation that 
had reasonable scale um, and people loved working for. So, you know, very few people ever left. So it was, uh, you know, it was an interesting time where I learned uh, a lot, but also questioned a lot, I think. You mentioned then about that, that, that keyword for me about acceleration. How do you think you recognised when you weren't accelerating? I mean, I've, I've always been someone who has, yeah, at this stage, at this stage in life, without realising it, has had a real growth mindset. So I am highly inquisitive to the world around me. I love learning new things. I love innovating, and I am easily inspired. And where one of those things falls down, so where I don't feel that I'm learning at a fast enough rate or I don't feel inspired by those around me or the work that I'm doing, I'm equally someone that can become frustrated and disillusioned quickly. And I suppose at the end of that sort of initial two-year period at Grosvenor, I, I felt that sort of rate of learning had started to sort of plateau and I was increasingly hungry for the next sort of catalytic step that would take me out of my comfort zone. And, you know, I really identify with the importance of feeling out of your comfort zone. You know, as soon as I felt comfortable in my career, I've always felt that something is slightly out of kilter, strangely, that, you know, that they have been the less positive periods of my career. And, and, you know, I'm now clearly looking at it um, with hindsight and sort of understanding myself and, and I suppose, you know, the development of people better, that is because those are the periods I, I you know, I, I don't feel as though I'm, I'm acquiring knowledge in a way that, um, in a way that, you know, really sort of triggers that excitement and interest that, that for me is a very important part of my DNA. I really liked the, the phrase there about those, those catalytic moments. So I think we're teeing up your chance then to go to, to really see Grosvenor on a global scale, haven't you? Because this is the point then which you, you choose to leave the safe haven of London. Yeah, I just started sort of sending out emails and I sent one to the investment director in Paris who'd been mentioned to me and, and one to one of the senior, my senior colleagues in Hong Kong, really just asked whether or not they had any jobs going. And actually, you know, both of them came back positively. But the... The investment director in, in Paris, a guy called Steve Cowan, came back very positively and said, well, actually, we're looking for an investment analyst. Why don't you, why don't you come and see me next week? And he sent me a Eurostar ticket. So I hopped on the Eurostar and went to meet him. And within a week, uh, he'd offered me a job in Paris. And it, yeah, there was a sort of other opportunity sort of potentially available for Hong Kong and I had a conversation around that. But Paris was really exciting to me. I mean, it, firstly, I love the city. I didn't know it well, but knew that I loved it from, you know, having trips out there as a student. But B, I really recognised that it was a, a different cultural environment. And I didn't really speak French. And, you know, it would be made clear to me that the job was essentially a French-speaking role. Um, and they offered it to me on the basis they understood that there was a language barrier, but I'd have to, within the first year, acquire a working proficiency of the language. That was exciting. And I saw, you know, I saw that actually just as a really nice life skill to add to my uh, repertoire. But it just felt like a big step out of my comfort zone. And that, you know, going back to that sort of, you know, growth mindset and really wanting to test myself and grow professionally and personally, it felt like the right choice. So I, in parallel with that process, I'd been offered a, a job at um, a product company. And I went back to them, um, told them it wasn't the right time, that I was going to stick with Grosvenor. And, you know, I signed up to get on the boat to, to go to France. And the whole process from me sending the email to Steve to starting work in Paris took five weeks. So it was a sort of, you know, a pretty rapid change in direction. I rented a flat opposite the Moulin Rouge in the red light district of Paris, which was an interesting place to live for the first three months, um, on top of a tube line uh, with uh, some uh, fairly dubious neighbours, I have to say. But it was just a brilliant time. It was so, you know, such an exciting 
period of my life in terms of, uh, you know, just completely difference of energy source. Uh, and, you know, moving away from, you know, very established, you know, foundations and support networks around me in, in London, you know, through family and friends to, you know, feeling as though I was on my own and it was, uh, there was an opportunity to break new ground. Yeah, that was what really drew me to the opportunity. Okay, well, so just for the benefit of the listeners now, just give us a bit of a timestamp to to where we're at. What year are you in now? So I moved to Paris in 2007. We're now sort of moving into 2008, and the world is changing. So I've had, by this stage, I'd had a year of getting to know, you know, some new markets, growing my technical capability, um, particularly across the investment uh, arena, and you know, come September 07, the tremors of, you know, what was then known as the credit crunch, what we now call the global financial crisis, were starting to to be felt at that stage relatively gently, but, you know, with indicators that, uh, that the world, you know, might start to change in ways that, you know, as professionals in finance more broadly, we were not ready for. And so how did you get ready? Given sort of the organisation that that Grosvenor are, how do you deal with that? When I look back at that period, yeah, there was a critical relationship that I had, which was with them, my then boss, a guy called James Rayner, who yeah provided a great deal of yeah leadership in terms of clear direction, but also yeah real authenticity. And, and what I mean by that is. He he made it clear to 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 me, and I think to everyone else in the team that we were in a pretty precarious situation. Not necessarily as a business. This wasn't this it wasn't something that was going to bring the company down. So the world was imploding. We'd had the GF. Uh, we were in the middle of the GFC, and um, you know by this stage, you know we were two thousand nine. I had just got married got married in France and my wife had just fallen pregnant. So it was a great period of life, learning at work, lots of exciting stuff, high pressure stuff going on at work, but a personal life that had reached some milestone moments in its own right. And yeah, life felt pretty good. And then it all sort of fell down upon me in April 2010 when I had taken a couple of weeks off work to go ski touring, which is where you sort of clamber up mountains with ski strapped to your back and then ski down them. Uh, we were doing a route across the Swiss Alps, um, me and four mates, and out of nowhere, we were hit by an avalanche. And two of my best friends were uh, washed off the mountain, and one of them was very sadly killed. But it's, you know, it's, uh, it's probably not the sort of thing that people usually sort of you know, talk about in a career podcast, but inevitably one's career and one's personal lives are inextricably interwoven. And the reason I mention it here, Nick, is it, that became a very big sort of reappraisal moment for me in terms of what was important and, you know, probably, you know, has influenced not only, you know, the, influenced the next chapter of my career at that stage, but has influenced, you know, almost every chapter of my career ever since and indeed often it influences how i sort of react and behave on a day-to-day level at work okay well let me ask you then one question about that what's the legacy of that tragedy been on you personally when you find yourself in the thick of that i think different people will always react in different ways and you know my reaction to it was you know in, in the immediate aftermath to make sure that i i did toby my friend proud in terms of making sure that the aftermath of his death was something that people, uh, you know, close to him, his family in particular, could cope with. And, yeah, that, that's a hard thing because you go through everything from being the person you has to make the telephone call saying this has happened all the way through to trying to figure out what you can do as an actor to, to try and make it as easy as possible for everyone. And, yeah, that's hard and, you know, wearing and hugely emotional. It's only, it's only been more recently, uh, 10 years after the event, that I can now really talk about it, you know, without completely breaking down. But, you know, the, the personal legacy, the personal change, I suppose, was 
this when you're that close to a tragedy like this when it happens to someone who equally are very close to as a person as a friend in me it triggered this sort of attitude to make the most of life and and you know that includes make the most of work and not die wondering as to whether or not you gave it your best shot so you know i sort of identify with this sort of carpe diem mindset or attitude of making every day count it also bred in me a two other things one being a deep-seated sense of resilience and i apply that frequently to you know my working life and how that manifests is you know since that event nothing that i've come across in work will ever be as bad as that moment and so when i'm up against something that feels tough yeah i i sometimes use you know that experience just to contextualize you know the position that i find myself in and and you know sort of help you know, provide the sort of toolkit or the armor that sometimes we need just to get through the tougher moments the tough moments at work are never as bad and the second point is is work-life balance actually and you know i have a real bucket list of things in my personal life that um you know i'm much more focused on now making sure that i tick off and you know there would have been a time before that you know in my early 30s where i was just you know very devoted to work and you know spend most of my time um thinking about work or working and you know i now am much more able to you know separate and ensure that you know when i work i work really hard and uh, i work in an extremely focused way but equally i carve out the time that i need to both reset to you know be a good father for example but also to do the things i want to do in my life that you know go beyond you know beyond work and the immediate thing that came out of the avalanche in respect of that was one of the things i'd always wanted to do was sail across the atlantic my other friend who actually is also my brother-in-law who was in the avalanche and washed off the mountain as well and spent about six weeks in hospital recovering with a broken spine i spent three of those weeks with him in the immediate aftermath we agreed that we'd sail across the atlantic later that year because it was on our bucket list and you know we realized that you know we might not have that long on this earth and yeah you know, that, that felt like a raw emotion back then by the way it sounds like a bit of a glib remark now but um and we felt an urgency rather than to retire from doing you know silly risky things to get on and sort of complete our bucket list so later that year you know Grover McKinney gave me a couple of months of work and we sailed across the Atlantic and took that one off so uh yeah work life balance you know is a really big thing for me now in a way that ensures that i you know i i don't risk looking back on my life and thinking oh my god i you know i spent it in the office it's certainly sort of the topic of vogue isn't it at the moment whilst we're in in lockdown but I certainly hope we don't have to experience it so vividly as, as you have to, in order to benefit from that lesson. Okay, well, right, we're up to uh, 2011 and you made the decision to return back to London. But tell us a little bit more in terms of what capacity and what was happening for you career-wise then. Yeah, so, um, you know, we were coming out of the um, financial crisis at this point. Um, you know, I'd obviously um, learned a lot, been an interesting time, uh, in terms of my uh, technical and personal development. And I got a call from Peter Vernon, who was then the chief executive of Grover's UK business. Uh, I hadn't really sort of spoken to him since I left to, to move to Paris, actually. But you know, he had set out the fact that he was looking to change the business, that he had you know, restructured much of the London business and was looking for someone to come back and, and run the Mayfair estate. And he'd like to you know speak to me about the opportunity of taking that role and that was you know an interesting um curveball actually because you know whilst i had a pretty turbulent time um you know personally interesting time you know but equally turbulent at work i was extremely happy living in paris you know increasingly becoming a francophile you know, even by that stage i started wearing brown shoes <laughs> I grew a bit, 
um, we'll probably put on about three stone in weight as well, I'd say. Um, but you know, it had been a, a a very you know important time, you know, as, as I described personally and professionally. So the move, you know, moving back to London wasn't part of the plan at all. It was something that you know was presented as an opportunity, and and as that discussion developed with Peter and and with the team back in the UK, it it became pretty obvious that it was a an opportunity for another step change uh, in terms of moving into that leadership space in particular and for the first time in my career you know manage a reasonably significant um you know team of people looking after a you know a, a wonderful asset so you know whilst it took me to some time to convince me perhaps in a way that i imagine peter thought was a bit strange um it's it, uh, the penny dropped eventually that you know it was a fabulous opportunity to uh, to to shift gear. So this was going to be your, as you mentioned, yes, your first big leadership role. What did you learn about yourself at that time? Well, it, you know, it's interesting because you know, eventually, anyone who who's you know, takes that step, um, yeah, you know, I sort of defy anyone to say that they're really ready for it. And uh, you know, I would have been early thirties. Uh, at this stage, and you know, I didn't feel, I didn't feel ready for it. You know, I, I had a very a tiny team in Paris of you know two people reporting to me, and, and this was a team of, it wasn't an enormous team, but it was a team of, um, you know, 22, 23 people. Um, you know, different people, you know, people in different roles. You know, everyone from asset managers to, um, you know, investment people um, to, um. You know, building surveyors, you know, elements of um, or activities that I wasn't well versed in at all. I wasn't expert in. So, multidisciplinary um, team um, and a team that you know had been through this sort of organisational change program and felt pretty unsettled. And um, you know, a lot of people had left the business through that process, um, uh, and yeah, they found themselves within a new structure that I actually hadn't been an architect of, but was being asked to lead. So um, it was, a, you know, I'd say for at least a year, is a real period of self-reflection. And, you know, I go back to that empathy point, you know, really that ability to listen to people, understand, you know, where they're coming from, what makes them tick. Um, uh, but also, you know, a rapid period of self-development in terms of what it is to be, a good authentic leader because you know for the first time in my career at the age of you know 32 i you know had a team of people that you know with loads of people you know most of whom actually were more experienced than me and um you know ensuring that yeah there was an interesting process of winning trust and respect and you know it it became very obvious that the only way that i was going to do that was by a being authentic, but B, you know, being very clear that there were people in that team who knew more than me, and you know, not feeling embarrassed or shy about that, but embracing that, and you know, using that as you know the fundamental means of, of both winning trust, but also of um, empowering those around me. And um, yeah, I, <laughs> those lessons took a little a little bit of time to learn. You always leave us on a, on a cliff edge, don't you? Because now, inevitably, people listening to this will want to know about sort of what lessons you've you've learned. But I also want to give us plenty of air time to talk about how quickly you've gone through those ranks. Because you're, I think you mentioned, Jen, you're sort of 30, 30, 30, 32, leading the, the Mayfair estate. But you've got four years left with Grosvenor of extremely accelerated growth. That's where I'd quite like to to spend our time talking about. What was the catalyst for change from that first role to the next role? So the the next four years, so all the next, it would have been the next seven years, actually. So from 2011 to 2018, I you know, had a period of effectively, you know, going through the gears every couple of years, uh, moving roles. And I moved roles, you know, so there were three substantive changes in that period where I stepped up from running the Mayfair estate to running the London portfolio. So that, that being all of the London um, 
investment and asset management business to then stepping up to to joining the the Grosvenor's UK board and uh, overseeing uh, the entirety of the London business, including its development business. And um, there were, you know, in terms of the cat- catalyst moments, there were some catalyst moments that I suppose were more organisational in terms of how the business was evolving, becoming more sophisticated on one hand, and you know, organising itself differently as a result. And personally, you know, there was, I think there were two things going on here. One, there was I enjoyed leadership. And, you know, I sort of identified, I, I, I identified the fact that I enjoyed, you know, the challenge of, I guess, in some respects, I call it sort of general management, but, you know, leadership at scale, you know, being responsible for a raft of interwoven activities that, you know, have real com- strategic and operational complexity to them and ensuring that the process of aligning objectives or aligning actually a corporate strategy to goals and objectives and to the allocation of resources. Yeah, that domain of strategic thinking and translating strategy into action is something that I find extremely intellectually rewarding. And uh, that, I suppose, was an important part of being able to move through those gears for me Um, and being authentic as a leader looking up within the organization and you know uh, and and for those above me getting comfortable that here was somebody that was yeah able to to assume more responsibility um with the sort of you know strategic and operational skill sets but also the sort of human dimension of leadership that i think is so fundamental to success so will you mention then about the lessons you've learned uh, during these early days of leadership, and I and I spoke to a couple of people who uh, who'd been part of that that team that you inherited when you'd returned back to London, uh, and there was something that stood out. Uh, they said that Will has a real love of people. He's got a real deep interest into the psychology in terms of what what makes them tick, almost to the point of being quite intimidating. But they they thought that you always gave them, or at least you always began at the position of giving someone the trust to find their own way. And we're continually pushing those boundaries. Now, that's the people who are sort of uh, who are within that team. How do you think that was sort of recognised, or how do you think that was received by your superiors at Grosvenor? I think that's a, a really interesting question. So, firstly, I'm pleased that that has come out in conversation with others. One of the and the reason for that, that I think one of the fundamental responsibilities of any leader is releasing the potential in the people that they lead. And fabulous leaders that lead great teams are, I think, brilliant at that. Um, and that requires, you know, trust, empathy, and a deep-seated belief that, you know, everybody has that potential. Sometimes it's just, you know, the requirement is simply giving them the, the confidence to be able to exercise it and release it. There is, though, a, a you know, really interesting points around, you know, leadership, which, you know, works, you're, you're absolutely right, works, you know, up and down the chain. And the perception of being led is often very different from the, from the perception that though, you know, the peers and superiors have of leadership style. And, you know, one of the reasons, I guess, that led to my eventual departure at Grosvenor was I probably had a style that was quite different in terms of leadership to many of my peers within the organisation. And, yeah, I think that that was probably regarded, you know, by many as a positive thing. Um, but, you know, probably that stylistic point uh, was sometimes misunderstood, you know, by others, you know, above and around me in a way that every now and again would cause, it would ruffle a few feathers. You know, I've always had a degree of a sort of informality. You know, I think often you, you bring out the best in people by creating an environment that is, you know, slightly more flip that confers slightly more flexibility uh, to how people you know operate and work and yeah at that stage you know, perhaps that was one of the things that you know I sort of recognized you know not everybody would have looked at that and felt entirely entirely comfortable with that so I think uh, you know I think that there there was always a slightly different perception of what who Will was as a leader and what he was like to work um, for from the people who worked for me as as to those you know are, uh, 
that were alongside me. Quickly then, what do you think, what was the best perceptions of you and what do you think were the worst perceptions of you? Well, let's start, let's start with the good ones because that's always, uh, that's always easier. Um, <laughs> I think, uh, you know, there's, uh, I, I do love people and, you know, I, one of the things I enjoy most around, uh, about work is, you know, the plethora of, you know, people that one comes into contact with and meets and, you know, has the privilege of leading uh, and, you know, harnessing and trying to get the best out of them and really getting to know them and, you know, you use the word intimidating. It's, it's funny, I think people are often intimidated by my inquisitiveness. Yeah, you know, I'll ask the blunt questions. I want to really know who they are and, and how and what makes them tick. And, you know, I, I'm willing to sort of go deep into those conversations because I think in the long term, you know, that creates, you know, very meaningful relationships and bonds of trust that allow people to achieve more collectively. But you have to be part of those conversations, don't you, to, to sort of understand the, uh, you know, the, where they come from in terms of authenticity. And so I think, yeah, those are, those are the sort of, you know, those traits have always been, you know, strong and, and I think, you know, been recognised and, and replayed to me. You know, I, you know, I love working with others more broadly. So, you know, promoting the business, you know, finding new partnerships, ways of working um, with, uh, you know, with the extended ecosystem uh, around me has always been very important. I'm very commercial. Um, you know, I love doing good business. Um, I enjoy being successful. Yeah, you know, I, I have a strong belief that yeah, any organisation needs to be built upon its commercial success first and foremost. Um, you know, without commercial success uh, in the long term, there won't be business. And uh, uh, and then finally, you know, alongside that, I'm very values led. So I think yeah, I'm yeah, I'm I have a, a strong moral compass, and and you know that's equally important and um my version yeah i have a very clear view as to right and wrong in my world um uh that you know i, I use to help make decisions so and i think broadly speaking those things are recognized you know in terms of you know the more difficult side uh, of will you know as i say I, I really value adaptability and flexibility um in a way that yeah, it can sometimes be challenging for people. Um, you know, people, I, I think corporate, I think organisations, you know, inherently require structure. At a personal level, my yeah, approach, you know, is much more fluid. And therefore, you know, one of my challenges is I, I've moved through the higher echelons of leadership. And, and now, you know, as I sit here as chief executive, is, is ensuring that, yeah, my own preference for fluidity is allied with enough organisational structure and rigour and focus and grip. And I sort of, you know, nowadays I, I look at, you know, leadership in, through the lenses of pace and grip often. And this is particularly relevant as you look at leading change. You have to balance those two things. You, know, you can't only move with pace and not have any grip. And equally, you can't have so much grip that you erode momentum. And... Yeah, I'm constantly, I have to check myself on those two things because, you know, naturally speaking, my preference is to pace um, and, uh, and and therefore I have to sort of you know, hold myself to account in terms of how I provide structure and grip. Well, then, and I would say that there's a, you know, that equally throughout my career, I've had that feedback and, and that's helped me in terms of recognising the need to respond. Well, you talk about pace and I think anyone from, from the outside looking in, had sort of saw Will's career rocket from 2011 that's, uh, until 2018. That's seven years span with, with Grosvenor from running the Mayfair Estate to ultimately being the executive director for the entirety of the London um, portfolio and £5 billion assets of management. You ended up as a main board director, but it's of an organisation who's got a reputation as being part of the old world of real estate. It's firmly within the, sort of the class of the establishment. So how does that shape your, your decisions moving forward? Um, well, I suppose, you know, I, I came to a point in my career at Grosvenor where, you know, I needed to make a decision as to what, you know, the future held. And, and that sort of neatly coincided to me sort of, you know, starting to you know, inch towards my 40th birthday. And, um, 
it's it's peculiar isn't it but it's obviously a natural point in life where yeah it's a real um a real point of reflection for many people and you know i reached that point looking at what i'd achieved at growner which had been an amazing journey but there wasn't you know much room looking up the tree and you know alongside that you know i asked myself the question i suppose is to whether or not I wanted to sort of strap on to the next stage of the journey, uh, I to continue doing more of what I've been doing um, and try and lead the business. And yeah, you know, I had some very open conversations with Grosvenor as to um, yeah the potential for that. And you know, the conclusion of of that yeah that process of self reflection was um, in many ways I didn't want to look back on a career that you know, had not, you know, experienced enough that, you know, I wanted to build a rich tapestry and I didn't want to be in a position where I look back and, and by accident or design that, that I'd spent the whole of my career, you know, in one place, notwithstanding the fact that, you know, that place that I was in was, you know, fantastic in, in so many ways. So, um, yeah, I made the decision to leave, and in making that decision, I also made the decision not to rush into anything. Um, I've been working, you know, pretty hard. It's success is, you know, requires blood, sweat, and tears, and therefore that period from 2011 to 2018 had been hard work. And I felt actually that I just needed a bit of a break and a reset. And and in in doing that that I would probably be able to create the perspective I needed to make a really good uh, decision around what what uh, should come next. Um, so that's what I did. I, I left Grosvenor in 2018. At the time, felt like quite an emotional thing, um, having devoted so much of my life to it. But, um, you know, on, on walking out of the door, actually, in June 2018, it felt amazing. I mean, it, it felt so, you know, the freedom that I felt at that point was remarkable and i took off with my family for uh, a few months of sailing down the barrier reef of you know took my kids to um to, to places like sri lanka and we immersed ourselves in nature um and you know experienced together that actually in itself was was formative and uh, a great opportunity to to remember, you know, what is most important in life. So, Will, given that time out, what was it that attracted you to the opportunity with Retirement Villages Group as their chief executive? That time, yeah, the time away from work was, you know, the, the, the question that I sort of set myself, I suppose, and I didn't set it immediately, but I, I said it probably, you know, when I was sailing a boat in Australia was ensuring that I chose something that I felt uh, had an important impact on society. So, you know, why do we go to work? Why am I going to go to work? It can't be simply to pay a shareholder a dividend. There has to be something that is more meaningful than that. And if I could find a business that I felt, you know, played a genuinely important part in, you know, the society that we all understand and in responding to the challenges that we face um, as a society and as communities, then um, then that would be a fantastic uh, next chapter. And I came back, um, you know, to the UK with that in mind. And this is, you know, going back to your earlier question Nick is what did you have a plan it was the first time that I you know genuinely started to think strategically about my career you know Grosvenor things had just happened and I had an organization that was you know sort of almost sort of doing some of that thinking for and with me but here I was you know on my own and I remember pulling out a blank piece of paper and saying okay well you know let's talk about what you're you know where, where your skills lie, what you're good at, and let's you know, let's have a really hard think about what the big trends in society are that you know I might be able to play a difference within. And you know, I identified a few issues from you know the environmental crisis as we now describe it, um, all the way through to 
communities and, and how communities are, are genuinely enabled to be successful. Uh, and then aging was one thing that I kept coming back to, um, you know, this extraordinary ticking time bomb that we have uh, as a society in terms of the, the population. And, you know, I started reading more and more on that. And, you know, it started becoming more and more fascinating, particularly just how those older demographics, those older groups in society are, are growing exponentially and very quickly. The number of 75s and overs doubling in the next 20 years, the number of 85 uh, and overs traveling. And it seemed to me that there was something here that was a real shared value opportunity. Not only was you know, demand for better quality options that enable people to live well for longer, um, demand you know, increasing in, in a one-way direction, but equally I looked around and, and there just didn't seem to be enough being done. And um, it, it was obvious to me that community building in its wider sense needed to be at the heart of that. And, um, you know, I felt I had something to offer there. So that became the, you know, the area of sort of principal interest. And I started to go and explore uh, where I might, you know, find a business or an organization that either was doing something in that space already or, or had an ambition to, and that led me to AXA. Uh, just bought the Retirement Villages Group about a year earlier, which was you know, a relatively established SME. They had you know, bought it on the basis of, you know, in part of social value strategy that they were looking to, to build upon within the AXA Real Assets Group. And you know, they had, yeah, a strong sense that there was an opportunity in the sector, albeit they didn't exactly know where the opportunity lay and how best to uh, exercise it. And that was the job that they uh, hired me for. Perfect. So Will, let me ask you one last question. I want to find out a little bit more about the challenges that you're facing now as a first-time chief exec in a sector with challenges it has never faced before in the face of COVID. Well, I'm delighted that sort of COVID has, has finally made an appearance in this conversation. <laughs> I, don't, I, don't, I never think it gets uh, enough airtime, does it? <laughs> exactly, yeah. Um, I think we've done extremely well to speak for you know, 50 plus minutes without mentioning it. Yeah, let, let, me, let me just touch on the first, uh, first part of that question. Um, so, you know, first time chief exec, yeah, what's the difference? Well, the fundamental difference is the buck stops with you, you know, for everything, not just, you know, for, for part of the part of uh, you know the organisation that, that you're responsible for, and yeah, that, that's there's definitely a sort of change in uh, in sort of attitude, I suppose, that comes with that. There is a um, you know, in, in my case, you know, speaking very candidly, there's a uh, probably a sort of slight impatience that that comes with that. Also, I, I've always felt there to be you know more time in my prior roles to deal with situations that perhaps aren't perfect, whether or not they relate to people or process or systems or strategy. Uh, when you're chief executive, you, you feel a much greater degree of impatience. You, you feel less time. Um, and therefore, the, the importance of having real bench strength around you in terms of you know, the quality of, of people, of talent in your team, you know, to me, that has that's grown as a, as a, as a real focus and, and, and grown in importance. You know, I was able perhaps to compensate previously for gaps in a way that nowadays I'm not. And, and therefore, you know, the quality of the organization around me becomes very important. And, and there's a job to be done for us at RV at the moment in, in creating that infrastructure and, you know, and talent pool in a way that will lock in success in the future. The other aspect, as a new chief executive, you know, revising the strategy of an organisation, creating a very different ten-year plan um, for the business, um, but also customer proposition, radically reforming our customer proposition, has been the importance of starting with the why. And as I said, that's been a, that was a very important part of what led me here. But ensuring that that purpose uh, is 
a guiding light for everyone in and around the organization that they can be fundamentally proud of is hugely enabling and and important to you know long-term success and you know it is the i think the the rallying cry that will help us achieve more than uh, than many people would have thought this organization were possible of a year ago and um, you know quite simply uh, that boils down to our employees and those around us understanding that what we do is important work and you know we make a very valuable contribution to society and that being something that we can be immensely proud of and I think you know any organization yeah actually has an opportunity to frame what they do in a more purposeful and more interesting way and it is always or not always but so often under invested in in terms of time and energy just ensuring that that construct is framed in a way that really galvanizes a culture uh, and its people and then you know, the second point around COVID I mean for, for us you know new chief executive a year in COVID lands yeah and, and you know we have 2,000 current customers who are fundamentally you know vulnerable many of whom would die if, if we weren't able to operate our communities in a way that kept them safe. So that has been an interesting challenge. And I suppose I look back at, you know, I look back at the group uh, at the GFC and what I learned there. And the critical thing for us has been quick, decisive, you know, nimble leadership and you know, being willing to pivot early and make decisions quickly that allowed us to protect and yeah there was though we were never going to regret making tough decisions around protecting people um early on in the process albeit we raised a few eyebrows along the way uh but we would have always regretted not doing enough soon enough so i think reacting to the world decisively is one of the biggest one of the most important factors of good leadership um, and you know often you know the world in which we live is ambiguous and and therefore being decisive isn't easy but uh, uh, in recent times it's been critical to success i have no doubt there are many leaders who are listening to this who would really agree with you i think that's a quite an interesting sort of definition of the leader in terms of having to react to the world Listen, well, I'd, I wanted to say thank you very much for giving up your time for this. I found this fascinating and I have no doubt sort of our, our audience will have really benefited from your honesty um, around your personal and sort of career development throughout this. So thank you again. Pleasure. Thanks for having me. This podcast was brought to you by McDonald & Company, the leading real estate recruiter. To discuss any matters with Nick Carman, please contact him via the email address in your show notes. And don't forget to subscribe to receive the latest episode as it's released.